It's surprising, I know you know this, how diverse your skill set must be in order to be a leader in technology. It's not just about technology. But I always say, you know, the more facets, the more brilliant you are. So don't just hang your hat on one thing. Even if the certification is what gets you into the door because you need something, be rounding out those other things, right? We're not one trick ponies anymore in technology. We can't be. I mean, you can be, but we'll be calling you a dinosaur, you know, very soon. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Maria Sexton, Chief Information Officer at University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. Maria started out as a self-described secretary seeking a better financial future for her family. Now she's a security and IT executive working her dream job. She joins us to share how she became a strong communicator and an even stronger leader. Being confident in your strengths is important, but so is understanding your weaknesses. So what matters most, experience, certification, or higher education? If you don't feel qualified for a job, how should you tackle the interview? And what do first graders and board members have in common? Maria, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you being on the show. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Certainly. Thank you, Steve, for having me. My name is Maria Sexton. I am the Chief Information Officer for University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. In the Las Vegas area, we are lovingly and locally known as UMC, a very large hospital, the only county hospital in the state of Nevada, clinics around the valley. We've been around for 91 years. and as we'll talk about, this is absolutely my dream job. So very, very happy to be here, Steve. Thank you. That might be the first intro we've ever had where dream job is mentioned, which is fantastic. What about that? I mean, there's a lot of elements to that formula, I would think. Outline some of those for us. How does Maria define kind of that dream job? And the question, just for people to reflect on where they might want to go one day. How did you come up with that and and what is dreamy about it? Sure. So, you know, I've I've been in healthcare IT for a long time. My long almost 30-year career. I've worked in a lot of different industries, consumer packaged goods, retail pharmacy, local government, federal government, audit, just many things. So I have a very diverse background. I came into healthcare accidentally. It wasn't really something that I had intentionally decided to do. Um, but when I came into it, I really found where I wanted to bring my abilities, if you will. You know, I also worked for gaming and entertainment here in Las Vegas. And that is not to say that any of those, whether they be patrons or consumers or whoever your customer happens to be, are any less important. For me, when I came into healthcare, I'd found the consumer, the customer base, if you will, that I really wanted to serve. And those are patients and their families, those individuals in need. So even though, again, I had not deliberately planned to go into healthcare, something brought it all together and in healthcare I landed. And so when I came here to UMC, um, I just realized that that was really where I wanted to to give my gifts and contributions, if you will. So that was the sort of the mission-driven part of it. When I came into UMC, again, we're a very special hospital. We are the only county hospital in the state of Nevada. So we serve individuals who literally have nowhere else to go. 
And that really speaks to, again, what was important for me from a mission perspective and really giving back. So it was the the culmination or the combination, if you will, of taking care of patients and serving that community and finding an institution that really aligned to what I believed in and my mission. And so that's why it's the dream job. I came in, I started in, you know, director roles and moved up and had the very, you know, great fortune of being in the right place at the right time when the CIO position became open, threw my hat into the ring and was selected. And so, you know, no matter how challenging the days are, and they are, many days are challenging here. um, I just, again, always reminding myself that I attained the dream with this position. So from the perspective of maybe people coming into the industry, you know, we say in IT and security, you can work anywhere for any industry, anywhere in the world. We are absolutely blessed in that sense. But I think finding, again, the industry that's important to you, the mission that's important to you, and then you put all your efforts behind, you know, getting into that industry and, and then moving up if, if that's your, you know, your career aspiration. I think that's, that really is unique and special. We don't all always find that. It's something that's, maybe we like the technologies, maybe we like a vertical, but there's very rarely that strong alignment that is articulated so well. So I think that's something for many of us to aspire to, frankly, and have the clarity around it to know that you're there and appreciate it. That's oftentimes we don't appreciate what we have or don't know what we want. And so you've seemed to have avoided each of those scenarios. I think that's awesome. So thanks for sharing, kind of breaking that down. We'll come back to a little more of that. But you didn't start as a CIO. Uh, if we roll back the clock, and I think this is actually a very interesting, maybe not an origin story, but it's certainly leaning that way. How did you get your start kind of your right before? What were you doing right before you began your IT path? I was working as a secretary. And again, I kind of jokingly say that, they, yes, back in the day, that's what they were called. I mean, today, you know, we certainly have more professional terms, right? Administrative assistant, whatever that might be. But yes, they were called secretaries back then. And I was working as a secretary for an organization in Chicago, um, based in Chicago, the American Medical Association, and going through some personal things in my life at that time with a separation from my first husband with three young children. And I was, again, by no means a single parent. You know, their father was very much engaged, but I did need to look at what I was doing with my life. You know, what was my financial future going to look like? How was I going to help provide for our daughters and for myself? And I had always been interested in computers. I got into IT in 96. And I remember we talked, the internet was born in 96. So it kind of gives you just kind of a frame of when I was coming into it. But I'd already always been interested in computers. And when I was in high school, there was this program, you know, you'd spend half the day at school and half the day at like a like a vocational school, if you will. And there was a computer class there. And this was computer class, like with punch cards and things like typing and punch cards came out and, and big green bar paper was printed. So it's, you know, we're in the way, way, way back machine right now. So that was kind of how I got interested in IT. When I was working at the AMA and really needed to think about a more lucrative, quite honestly, it was about the finances then, not about the career. I was like, oh, I kind of liked computers. So I started talking to the people who ran our network there at the AMA. How'd you get in? What'd you do? Now, I'm going to be clear here. Those folks were all men, and they all just kind of came up through IT. I don't know how they did. I don't know where they landed and how they got into it. But I said, well, how am I going to do this? I don't. My job doesn't entail technology. And so anyway, they gave some advice, go and get a certification. I did that. 
I took a loan out, went to a school and got my certification in Novell Netware. For some of the listeners who've been doing this for a while, they'll go, oh yeah, Netware, I remember that. Well, back in 96, it was the big operating system. So anyway, I went to school, I sat in seven courses, took seven certification exams and got my certified Netware engineer certification, which was awesome. Took me six months. And that, that whole time I was talking to the director of IT at the AMA, please give me a chance, please give me a chance. She finally relented and said, let me put you on the help desk. Wonderful. I started on the help desk. Somebody says, why did you bother to waste six months on a NetWare certification when everyone is moving to Microsoft? And I was like, well, that's awesome. That would have been great to know six months and $7,000 ago. Went back to the bank, got more money, went back to the school, signed up for the Microsoft certification program, took six courses, took six certification exams, passed and became a Microsoft certified systems engineer. So in a year, I'm holding two of the most coveted certifications at that time, CNEMCSE. But I was paper. I didn't have a lot of experience, but I did a lot of work at the AMA, really learned uh, my favorite job still in IT, help desk. I love the customer aspect of it. So did that, eventually ended up moving to Las Vegas, got an opportunity to get a job in Las Vegas for the Department of Energy. And that job, I went in with my application in hand and said, I'm going to work on the help desk. And the person, the hiring manager took that, crossed it off, said network engineer, changed the starting salary, had me interview with the network and systems team. And, you know, I'm again, I would be a terrible card player because I do not bluff. I told those individuals, I'm a hard worker. I clearly have an aptitude because I just passed 13 tests and got certifications. I'm willing to learn all of that. In any case, they brought me onto the team. And then it was just moving up from there with a lot of tenacity and diligence and hand raising when I didn't understand something and volunteering for projects and things to move up in the industry. But it was, it was a very, very much a financially driven decision back in 96 to, to move into IT because of, you know, of personal requirements. So you, you covered a lot of ground there. I think that what I find fascinating, well, a couple of things. One, have you thought about that moment where you went in to apply and whoever that person was, a man or woman that just went and kind of put a mark through your, your application and said, hey, we're going to divert you to this other team? I mean, that sounds like a, an accidental but a wonderful moment that it put you on a different path. Now, you had to put in the effort, right? You had to put those ingredients, the time and money into it the certifications and the classes to get them to to move that. It wasn't you begging them to say, hey, give me this other position. Have you thought about that or is that just a passing moment? That seems huge. You know what, Steve, I do think about that. I think about it often now in times where, you know, as you can imagine in my role, I have a lot of people that come and talk to me, whether they be students or maybe people coming out of the military or people making career changes about how they can get into IT and into security. And so I often reflect on that you know, what do they say? They say that luck is when opportunity meets experience. And so I don't feel lucky that I had that interaction, but it was, yes, again, one of those sort of right place, right time. A person, you know, maybe saw something more in me than starting on the help desk. It was a great opportunity. They were looking for someone. So I reflect on it often about just that opportunity. And yes, it put me on a different trajectory. Would I have gotten there eventually? I probably only in starting in the help desk and maybe a little further back, but. Um, I do. I think about it often. And it really, at the end of the day, this is very much a people business, right? Technology just happens to be what we practice. It's not what we do. You went to where I was going with that. I think it's a way to measure 
to reflect on this situation, to reflect on situations for the listener that may have had similar moments, but more importantly, as we move into leadership roles and we have these opportunities to, you know, these people may already be, you know, they may already get there, wherever there is, but sometimes you can kind of play a little bit of hand to God in the moment. Yes, and that's a good point. And I was going to say, too, that a lot of people, too, I mean, if this is happening, maybe not a lot, but people need to recognize when those things are being presented. Was it scary? Of course it was. I just had a, you know, maybe six or seven months on a help desk is my experience. I didn't want to fall on my ass in front of, of five other systems and network engineers, you know, so it was a little bit of mustering up a little bit of courage. I could have easily said, no, no, I'll just pursue the help desk position. I don't have the experience. But I was very clear and I said, you know, again, I've got the the aptitude. Yes, I want to take the chance, but that's what it speaks to for individuals. You got to be willing to kind of put yourself out there, try, fail, learn, keep going, you know, everything that we talk about now with regards to failing forward and all of that. But you got to recognize those opportunities, take the scary route and just dig in. I'll say something else I think that's abundantly clear to me after doing accidentally doing almost 100 hours of this interviewing people, specifically IT and security leaders, your method of delivery, hopefully this isn't embarrassing, but your method of delivery, the way you articulate your thoughts and present them, you do so very clearly. And it's in a very, not only is it easy to listen to, but it's also very direct, not a lot of superlatives, and it's just very clean, almost to the point like you've had I don't know, maybe acting experience or something, but it's very genuine. Have you had that? Have you had or have you always been? Because I'm thinking about how this level of sort of clarity and confidence, that overlay, no matter what you're doing, help desk, secretarial work, you know, as you described or anything or CIO, did you have any training or did you reflect on that or was it just always there? So I never had any formal training, nothing like that. You know, when I started early in my career, so, you know, now we start and I'm I'm at the Department of Energy and I have this, you know, network and systems engineer job. Although I was very good at it from an operational perspective because I'm very detail oriented, what I really identified and found was that I was never going to be a gifted engineer, right? I wasn't going to develop elegant and beautiful networks and systems. It's just not really the way my mind works. But what I did discover was that being detail-oriented, taking notes, articulating that back to individuals, whether in writing or in person, I was able to communicate technology, in a sense, to others who really didn't understand technology. And I recognized that they needed to hear it in layman's terms. That was kind of the beginning. So detail-oriented, picking up on information that I thought was important to share with the customer or the project stakeholder, whatever it might be in that scenario, I started to identify the skills I really had detail orientation, operationally minded, good communication skills, empathy, looking at people and reading their nonverbals. Maybe they're not getting what we're talking about or we're not speaking to what they need. I recognized that I was never going to be a great technologist early on. And so that's when I shifted to start to look at developing other skills, what I thought were strengths, to move into more leadership roles. As I did that, then invariably opportunities came in where I was leading projects or just communicating to larger groups of people. I love public speaking. I love to be able to, and, I, and I'm often called on to do it, whether it be in small conferences or talking to students at the graduate level, you know, postgraduate. I went and spoke to my granddaughter who's in first grade, her class about technology. I love doing that. So 
I've just become very comfortable with communicating information to people. I like to see their reactions. I like to inject a little bit of humor. So it wasn't really any formal training, but again, it was a recognition early on in my career of the strengths I had and really in a positive way, exploiting those strengths, developing them and really understanding I was never going to be a great technologist, but I, I was very effective at communicating at organization and op- you know operations. And those have served me very well. And again, I, it's just something I really love to do. I really like to present and talk to people and share information. And, and so I, I do it often. So maybe it gets, it's like anything, right? Practice does make near perfect. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it has become a skill that's been developed. It's muscle memory at this point, almost. Speaking of that, how did you describe to your granddaughter's first grade class what it is that you actually do? Oh my gosh. Well, so so that was really fun. And let me tell you, are those kids bright? My goodness. I mean, brighter. I, I was shocked. You know, I mean, my, my, of course, my granddaughter's bright. She's my granddaughter, right? So I'm going to say that, but it was great. The, so the, the, the premise is, and the way it gets set up is you stand in a room, you're in the same room, and over the next three to four hours, different classrooms are brought in of different grades. It's career day. And so you're absolutely right. I'm not the firefighter with all the cool stuff that he or she brought, or I'm not the police officer. So, you know, I'm standing there in a business suit, you know, like boring. But anyway, these classes were coming in. And yes, I was explaining to them. First, I asked, do, do, you know, do you guys work on computers? Every hand went up because, of course, they all do. And so I said, you know, in a nutshell, what I do is I just make sure all the computers work. I was going to keep it very basic because they're like, what's a CIO? But they were so incredibly bright. They were answering questions about what artificial intelligence is. They were telling me about strong passwords. So if that's anything of a testament to what, you know, some schools, hopefully all of them are doing with regards to injecting technology and learning about that with this, you know, with these young kids as they're coming up is just incredible. So I kind of explained it that way. And we had wonderful conversations and these students were just blowing my mind. No, I think that's great. I, I ask because that's a, it's phrased a little differently, but the required simplicity that you need in order to explain what it is you might do to a young person is sometimes, sometimes the same type of skill you need and patience when describing certain technical themes or needs to certain executives. And so I was curious, there is a parallel there. And to say something very simply, and be able to explain the reasons why. Yeah. But you know what, Steve? Simply, simply, but respectfully, right? So even though there was a classroom of, of small children, it wasn't talking down to them, but you're absolutely right, putting it on a level that your audience will understand and drawing analogies where it makes sense for them. An expensive consultant might say, putting it in their currency. Oh, well, oh, I like that. Okay. <laughs> I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> I had a partner at PwC teach me that. So he's a great friend. And so I've used that. So by the way, the loans you had, those were considerable. Like taking out, you said one was seven grand and the other was how much? Yeah, they were both $7,000. So in that year, yeah, 14,000 in these certification programs. That 14,000 was more than my first four cars. Well, you know, it's interesting though, because remember the time too, so this is 96, right? And everybody's kind of coming up. And, but that's when we were talking about that, you know, you graduate then from this, this private, it's not a school, but a vocational kind of an institution. And you graduate and then people are getting out into the world and they're landing, you know, listeners, keep this in mind. It was 1996. 
$75,000 a year network jobs, okay? That was a lot of money then, but then they were falling flat on their faces because they had no practical experience, which then sort of, you know, sort of marred the whole certifications that were based on particular vendors. But I say that to say that you're right. Those schools were charging a lot because they knew they could. It was just the market that was demanding it. Yeah, that's a very dangerous thing that we have in our industry, even today, where, and I think it's kind of self-corrected, but, you know, paper tigers is what some would call them. And we have to to watch that. But I think that the path then, if you do both, if you come up the way that, that you did and, and many others, you know, it's help desk, it's, it's understanding process and customer service and all of that. And then getting into, you know, networking, you're building the sort of the skill set. Maybe you're building the applied skill set slower than you built the certification, but they complement one another. Whereas if you had just been dropped into maybe the higher order positions, you may have, you know, found a similar fate. I don't know. But we there's several examples where in my past where we've hired people that they interviewed well and then they didn't get in. They they couldn't actually they didn't do well. They weren't set up for success. You know what I often say, because people ask me that too. Probably one of the top three questions I always get is, what's more important, experience or certification or higher education? Right? Like they're coming with these different things. And you know what I always say back, and I don't say it in a condescending way, but in my mind, the more facets you have, the more brilliant you are, just like a diamond. So one thing is not going, only certifications, no, only experience, no, only higher education, no, but those combinations of those things, and maybe your higher education doesn't necessarily have to be in technology. It could be a lot of things. It's surprising. I know you know this, how diverse your skill set must be in order to be a leader in technology. It's not just about technology. But I always say, you know, the more facets, the more brilliant you are. So don't just hang your hat on one thing. Even if the certification is what gets you into the door because you need something, be rounding out those other things, right? We're not one-trick ponies anymore in technology. We can't be. I mean, you can be, but we'll be calling you a dinosaur, you know, very soon. I think as a point of self, very humble self-reflection, I think I have lots of facets and I'm a beautiful diamond. I just have lots of carbon inclusions if we're going to go with that, (laughs) if we know. I just thought of that on the fly. I I had to say it. Uh, as lame as that is. I like that, though. I think that's, I think whatever works. And I think also with higher education, you know, there's newer programs now. But one of the things I think that I've found, if you didn't go, you're forced to create, to put your thoughts on paper and do a, a lot of writing. And some of the people that, that I've been very close to and I've worked with, they seem to struggle a little bit on writing well, because they just haven't, back to muscle memory, they just haven't worked that muscle as much. And that matters, you know, you know, going back from whether you're doing secretarial work or help desk or anything, you need to write well, you need to communicate clearly. And you don't want to be judged unfairly because your sentence structure is poor. And you don't want to misrepresent your organization. And you don't want someone to sort of judge, what do these folks know? Like, they don't, they can't even put a sentence together. But I think that if you can go forward you know, and show for those listening. I think certification is fantastic. I think picking the right one. I think that the cost, you know, today, a lot of people will go to like SANS training. That training has gotten, is very good, but also very expensive. You know, you may need to take out a loan for that. Just do it for the right reasons. You know, it could be, you know, know what you want to get out of it. And hopefully you're being sponsored. But I remember taking SANS training starting off. I was not sponsored. I was the only one in the room of 35 people that was self-sponsored. And I was a little bit sad by that because I was broke, but I was also very proud of the same thing. 
uh, frankly. So what's something you really love to see on someone's resume or when they tell their story, when you meet them, if they're asking about working with you and, and applying for a job? I want to ask that. Well, you know, certainly what I like to see is that motivation, right? That drive, especially now. Like, so 30 years ago, the big thing was, right, to get into IT and then the, these high paying jobs and people kind of falling flat on their faces because they didn't have practical experience. We're dealing with that insecurity now, right? So now if security, let's say, you know, some almost 30 years later, same sort of challenge. IT has become a kind of a staple, the, the thing, and commoditized and blah, blah, blah. Now it's security. Everybody wants to get into security, right? Because they see the Jason Bourne movies or the whatever movies and click, 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 and all the stoplights are now turned red and you can get the bad guy. So there's a sort of, I think, an unrealistic expectation of security, but also because it's not the up and coming, it is the thing. And so everybody's trying to get into it. So you, you kind of have to separate the wheat from the chaff, if you know what I mean. Some of these people that come in sort of beating their chest like they can do it. And it's like, OK, what I'm looking for, somebody who's really a self-starter, there are enough programs today, whether it be free or low cost information or training you can get on the Internet or professional organizations that welcome non-members and people that are not yet in the industry, whether it be ISC squared or ISSA or any of them. What I mean to say is without going on too long about this one is there are many channels to be able to get your foot kind of in the door, start networking, meeting people, understanding that. That's what means a lot to me because there's not that sense of entitlement. It is one part of it and also not that they've done a little bit of homework, right? They've started to talk to people and say, well, you know, I really do want to get into this. And these are some of the skills I have. And they have a great sense of what they can do and can't do. You know, we talk about the job they're doing today and how that can translate into a security position, whether it be that they're natural problem solvers, they're naturally inquisitive and want to figure things out. They have great customer service because, again, at the end of the day, there's a customer that we're serving. So that's what means a lot to me, self-starters. They, they put in a little bit of the work. That's great that you're getting your master's degree in cybersecurity. I think that is awesome, right? And that you're interested in it. But you've got to be putting in some of the work to really try and figure out where can you come in? What are the strengths that you have? Maybe you're not going to be the threat hunter because that's just not the way your mind works. But you could probably work for, you mentioned it, PwC, the big four, the mid-levels as an auditor. That's, you know, I spent time as an auditor doing, you know, IT and security audit. That's tremendously great and valuable experience. So I think it's sometimes having a great sense of, again, what you're good at and not good at and being honest with yourself. Everyone is not going to be the person developing encryption algorithms, right? It's just not the way it works. Something that just hearing you speak just now, a question kind of popped into my mind. You know, you, you say you speak often. And you enjoy it at events and to to educate. Uh, it is not your you're not a professional speaker, but you were a professional at it. And I can remember in my life going to conferences and I talked about this maybe one other time on the show, but I didn't lack confidence, but I never thought I could get up and speak in front of a crowd. I never thought I'd have anything smart enough to say. I never thought I'd knew how to get up and do it. And I, again, I was not the type of person who lacked confidence, but I would look at that and think, gosh, I just, I'll never know what to do. I, I, that, I cannot do that. I don't have the ability. I'm, I'm insecure. I'm afraid to do that. Did you ever feel that way? And, and how did you turn the corner? I, I now do it. <laughs> it's part of my job now, oddly. But did you ever turn that corner or did you natively always have that? You know, I feel like natively, I've always had the ability to communicate effectively. I think it really comes from, you know, when I was much younger, 
you know, my parents both, you know, emigrated from uh, Italy, where they were both born, to England, where I was born, and then here to the United States. And we've been in the United States for a very long time. But there was a requirement and a responsibility, if you will, as the oldest in the family, the oldest child, to be that communicator, if you will, sort of the Rosetta Stone between my parents and the many, many, many things they had to go through here coming, even coming from an English speaking country like England, again, they're native Italian. And so just working through, you know, the the process of gaining citizenship and naturalization and opening a bank account and buying a house and doing all that. So I think part of it, I was a little bit probably thrust into communicating and maybe at, at a higher or more mature level earlier than maybe I would have been in a different situation. So I think it was part of that. And then that also develop the empathy and the understanding of, you know, that it's sometimes things are challenging. And so making sure that both parties are clear on what it is that you're communicating, kind of what I talked about before about reading nonverbals and making sure we are getting the information to people that, that need it, or conversely coming back to us. So I think it started as I was young, and kind of coming up as I was growing up, you know, I mean, I've been asked this question too by many other women who are coming up in IT. You know, Maria, when you're in a room, you really command the room. And well, it's um, maybe it's the nonverbals too. I'm sort of demanding that attention, maybe through the stance I'm taking or the way I'm communicating or making sure that I'm starting that conversation by setting expectations. This is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about it. We're going to make sure we understand. So I tend to for lack of a better way, because it's going to probably sound negative, but I do sort of control the narrative of the meetings. Um, So I don't remember it, you know, in a very conscious way, turning that corner. I think it was just over time becoming, you know, more confident in what I was saying, reading the nonverbals. And I got to say, sometimes the feedback wasn't positive, you know, it wasn't like I was killing it from day one. But I incorporated those and thought again about, you know, people would say, like I do, I sometimes I'm verbose. So you know, I run on I I keep repeating myself. So as I was learning and hearing those things, I was not taking them personally. I was incorporating them into my communication style. So I don't remember a deliberate corner turn, but I must have turned several corners. There's been a fair amount of research on adversity and that happening, especially when you're young and all the situations that you described. You know, I I, I never had to firsthand experience that. I had, and we all have our struggles as, as youth. And that was a unique situation that you would have to develop a fair amount of fortitude in that. You know, you start learning very young. I think it's important. I get the question often when doing coaching and mentorship about even sort of well-resumed individuals, people with, with great experience that still sort of lack the confidence to get up and get that presentation. And the one trick, I think, or the one step that I think is mandatory for security teams and technology teams is the junior staff, I believe, should be presenting frequently. So in the course of doing whatever they do, when they find something of interest or they solve an interesting problem, they should create a brief and they should get up and present that in front of their peers. It's something that we did. It was part of our staff development plan on building and running security operations centers. And Everyone was required to do that, and then the senior staff were required to sort of uh, hold seminar and teach, uh, which we would open up to other departments. That's the best step, the best tip that I have that begins training the newer mind to sort of present findings and say interesting things. And then you have to worry about things like, you know, your presentation style and your, your pitch and your pace and 
you know, the use of pause and all these things, these other things. But is there anything else that you would add to that or any other kind of tip to the listener who may be struggling or maybe not have great advice to give to those that they mentor? Sure. You know, and you're right about that. That is a great program to sort of take people maybe a little bit out of their comfort zone and have them present and be able to, you know, whatever they've comprehended or they've gathered and be able to articulate that back to an audience and deal with questions and things. I think it's great. I think to add to that, too, you know, something that we've talked about here and in in my time in security and that maybe it's not so much the presentation part, but also the written word, if you will. Um, it's it's those things we've heard over our career, but really people do, especially coming up in security and in IT, let's say both really do need to understand that this isn't, again, this isn't the technology industry of 30 years ago where it was you know, maybe accepted that the IT individual would be sitting off in a corner somewhere just coding all day and never really have to interact with anyone else. It's just not that world any longer. It hasn't been that world for a long time. And so when I talk to people, even if they say to me, Maria, I don't ever want to be the CIO. I don't need to be able to speak to a board. And it's like, okay, well, fair. Maybe you won't. But you do have to communicate to your peers, to others. You do have to have or develop an effective communication style um, in written word as well. Again, so if you're putting an incident report together or if you're putting in a request, you know, potentially for some funding for a new technology solution that we want to bring in, that is very important. That's going to be an aspect of that person's abilities, right or wrong, of how mature, how well-developed their skills are. Like you started the conversation with being able to communicate, and that's critically important. So what I try and talk to them about is, again, it's not the day of a technologist who sits behind a keyboard and a monitor never to have to speak to another person again, whether you're speaking to coworkers, your leaders, others that it might be. So I think that's that part of it as well as you do have to be able to communicate well. You have to be comfortable with your subject matter. If you don't want to public speak, that's okay. You don't have to. We're not going to you know, push you out on the stage, you know, like you said, at DEF CON or something and make you speak to people. But I would say that's what it is, is being comfortable, recognizing maybe those areas that you need to develop, seeking help, asking for help um, and developing. But the thing that, I, again, I'll always tell people now is technology has changed so much and, and that that's just not going to be accepted any longer. That type, again, of a team member or an individual who just sits behind the keyboard and mouse and doesn't communicate. It is an absolute requirement of the job now, not a nice to have like it used to be. I think it would be career limiting to think of it that way and to think that it's not just sort of the you didn't phrase it this way, but sort of the nerdy technician, right? That's we need to add some more professionalism and expect that, too, because it's beneficial to all of us making yourself more valuable to yourself, to your company and, and to the market. And as leaders, I think we need to work hard, especially with the interns and the new hires, to develop that. One thing we haven't covered, and and there's a ton of other stuff I want to cover with you, but I think it's interesting also UMC twice, but you've kind of had two different roles or kind of two different orders of those. Talk to us a little bit about that. You're You're one of the rare, I think you're maybe the second or third guest we've had that had secure in charge of security and then sort of elevated to CIO. And I know that's on the minds of many. Uh, well, the question often is, what do I become after I'm a CISO? So I find it interesting that you've kind of played both of those roles and, and done so in inverse orders as well. So like I said, I did start out in traditional IT. And when I was at the uh, Department of Energy, again, right place, right time, a co-worker, 
who was doing the, you know, then the security work, firewalls, intrusion detection, antivirus, all of that, really needed a second. He needed someone to help just because he was on call all the time and just not able to manage all of this every day. And so he said, is anybody interested? And I just, again, hey, listen, is an opportunity. It sounds like something cool. Put my hand up. And he started training me. So I started doing that work. And that's how I got my foot in the door of security. And this is 98, so not long into the internet era, if you will, and started working in that. But the great thing about the team that I worked with then is that we really, back then, security was in traditional IT. It was in the network and the systems team. So it wasn't a different industry or a different specialty, if you will. So I got a lot of experience and I kind of went back and forth between those. I kept my hand in traditional IT, but also did a lot in, in security. And that had just served me well kind of as I moved up in my career, to your point. Sometimes I had positions where it was purely IT. Sometimes I had positions where they were more security related, whether it be as an individual contributor or a leader. I think that, again, it was just I was coming up really at a time where those were, I mean, that security was really developing into its own specialty. But still, I had the opportunity to be able to work within both of those. As I did start to move up, as you mentioned, you know, when I first came to UMC back in 2008, I came in as the information security officer. I think I was a very compelling candidate because I had security, but I did understand how IT works. And that's important, right? Because security is sort of built in and baked in, if you will, to technology, but you can't know what to secure if you don't understand how the things work. So I was a very compelling candidate and probably the only one, if you know, if not just one of a few that had both of that. So that helped me. And then soon after that, because of some changes organizationally, I did become the director of IT. So I had IT and security and then left, as you said, then came back again in 2018. I guess it'd be now, right? Yeah, five years. 2018, came in again as the information security officer, but with that strong technology background, and then started getting involved in some things. Director of IT position became open. It's literally history repeating itself. I become the director of IT and the information security officer, and then three years ago became the CIO. So I think it was partly opportunity, but partly I'm, you know, I'm sort of not a wallflower, and you're probably getting that from this. I mean, I took the opportunities to be able to stay in touch with IT when I was working on the security side. They're not separate, right? And we're not doing security for security's sake. So security has to be part of what we're doing with IT. Even if like in my role, I have both of them, but operationally, I have a person who runs our security operations team and does the day-to-day. But even if those two roles are peers, let's say it's CISO and the CIO are peers of each other, that's okay. You still have to you know, stay involved in each other's business. And if that's a difficult relationship to develop, you have to continue working at it. If it's all about the protection of the organization, right, and the data and the, and the people that you serve, that's just ha- has to be the way that, that it is. So I think, again, for me, I just kept my hand in it. I really just kept my hand in it. And when the opportunity came up, I was, again, a very compelling candidate because I have a very, very strong technology background, but I certainly understood the importance of how security was a part of that. That's awesome. I, I think that there are many who sort of wonder, what's next? What should I do with my career if they already have become a CISO? Is it a bigger position? Maybe they change the role, maybe they pivot out. But many of them are sort of stuck, maybe stuck in a good way, but stuck in the position and are unsure, you know, kind of what's next. So I find that that's really interesting that that's a, a, a path that you chose and were able to, to execute on. I want to pivot a little bit into, I love asking guests about bad advice. 
it's something that I feel like I've received in my career a couple of times. And and it's it's really a form of virtual mentorship. Uh, also, sort of like asking, what would you tell your younger self? But you told me in terms of worst advice that you really dislike fake it till you make it. Why does that irk you? Well, you know, definitely kind of, you know, as we talked about a little bit too, certainly in security, you really can't fake it. You either have to know it, you know, know what you're doing or just sort of put your hand up and say, I don't and give it to somebody who does because, right, the ramifications of that, the consequences of doing something, if you're not really sure, could certainly, you know, be very devastating. So I don't like it from a security perspective, but I just never liked it. Even when I was younger and coming up, I didn't like the lack of I don't know, you know, the word now is authenticity. I don't think we were saying that 30 years ago, but I guess it really irked me because maybe it was also about, you know, again, in 96, these people making all this money because they have certifications, but they really don't have any any value to bring to the organization. So that sort of, again, fakeness, the coming in, you know, just because I've got paper, I don't think it's good advice. I think you can spin it and say, well, you need to recognize the things you don't know. And if those are things you do need to know, you need to learn them for whatever particular career you're aspiring to, then get those things, learn them, whether it's through mentorship, you know, if you can find a mentor or get into a certification program or take a class at the university or read or whatever it might be. But it just sounded again, just disingenuous to me. It just sounded like no one should be faking any of this. I think we just need to be able to say, listen, I'm good at two or three things. I'm great at two or three things. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. I recognize I'm not great at these. I don't know them yet. I've only been doing this for five minutes, but I am committed to learning those things. And as I learn, I'm going to show you that competency and come up that way. I think the fake it till you make it is just telling people that, I don't know, you could just pretend or just, you know, it's just the bullshit speak. I could certainly go in a room and just regurgitate a bunch of terms that I can hear in any podcast or any article, but do I really have the chops? It just, it just spoke to just, a you know, again, just not what we needed to develop in people. I certainly did not appreciate it. And again, I'm not great at poker. So the faking it till you making it was not going to be a thing I could do. Right. Well, and it's kind of been reinvented in the Instagram slash LinkedIn world where there's a lot of BS and a lot of public BS where a lot of interesting posts and, and sort of fake views on things. So it's been reinvented maybe, and it, it's probably, you know, we're not calling it that anymore in terms of fake it till you make it, but it's now been supercharged. So maybe a little bit of a counterpoint. You and I spoke about this before about when applying for a job, and there, this is a, a delicate subject, I think. There are some that maybe you see a, a really interesting position. Again, this is more of a mentoring question, but it applies to all of us. There's an interesting job out there, and you might like to have that, but you're not feeling great on the inside, because you only have, maybe you're only 50% qualified, you know, the things you see on there. And again, we're talking about, we, we were just talking about fake it till you make it, but now we're talking about applying for a job. And, and we're trying to, to show ourselves to that company that we would be a good candidate. Unpack that. What's the counterpoint or maybe the, how do you differentiate that point for the listener that's, that may be a little unsure on that point? And they don't want to be a faker, right? They don't want to be that. But how do they how do they move forward and, and maybe act confidently that they should apply or not? Well, again, and, and I agree, I think certainly you would not want to apply that kind of fake it to you make it in that particular situation, because quite honestly, you're going to be found out if it's not in that particular interview, it's going to be very soon after and then your credibility is damaged. And I would tell you a small, we have a very small community here in Las Vegas in terms of technology and security, and everybody knows everybody. So you'd never want to do that here. But I would say in the larger 
What I tell people too is maybe you don't have everything on that job description or what they're looking for. First of all, sometimes they're crazy ass wish lists, right? If we ever even found that person, again, we would need to immediately clone them because they're literally, you know, technology and security unicorns. So kind of looking at it with sort of a reasonable eye, but also think about if they're asking for something and you don't have that particular thing, what do you do that's similar to that? So maybe I am not, you know, briefing the board. Okay, but am I briefing students or am I briefing, you know, I don't know, whatever group it might be, whatever that group might be, you're doing the same thing. So first of all, make sure to put that in your application or your resume. You say, I have never briefed a, you know, a board of directors. I have done this thing, right? Blah, 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 whatever that means. So, or whatever you have. So that's important. To me, it's always been, and I've, I have interviewed for positions, even as I've come up in my career, that I don't have everything they're looking for. So again, first of all, I'm like, well, that's crazy, because if you find that person, please show me who that is. So it's a reasonableness. You do have to, you know, kind of put yourself out there. Tough skin. Yes, you might not get the interview. You might not get the job. There's somebody better qualified, but you're learning. You're developing your interview style and how to answer those questions. But, you know, it's like the old adages. There's nothing new here. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Put yourself out there, try it, but put your best self out there. So again, even if you've not done the A thing that they're looking for, what have you done that could be considered something similar to that? Articulate that, recognize and communicate you don't have that particular skill today, but you have all these other things that have gotten you here and you're confident you're going to be able to develop that. You know, the hiring manager may or may not, you know, care. They'll drop whatever the case is. But to me, that is the advice. It's not faking it. It's you're going to capitalize. And again, the things you know you do well, get them out there, show that confidence, and then let that hiring manager know anything else they need. You'll learn it because you have the aptitude. You've obviously done all these other things. Right. I think that's great advice. And I I love the comment you made that job listings are wish lists. So, you know, be honest. Don't try to fake it, but draw those parallels on what you have done. They're so critical. Yes. I've said this to somebody just recently who was asking me about a, you know, a job. And I, I asked this person, they had applied just uh, like a desktop support position here in the company. And their application had gotten kicked back. So it came to talk to me. And I asked this person, do you have a home network? And they said, yes, I do. I've got on, you know, and all the, and all, on and on they went about their home network. I said, could you please make sure that you put that in your application? I get that our recruiter's not going to understand that because she recruits for all kinds of different positions. She's not a technical recruiter. But when I see that application or somebody on my management team sees that, we understand the value of a home network, right? If you're working on small firewalls in your house or you're putting things in place, you got the aptitude, brother. We need you here. So I keep telling people, think about all the broadness, the broadness of what you do with technology and put that in your application, your resume, or in your interview, but articulate it. Don't get, you know, sort of paralyzed by, again, that crazy-ass wish list of things that they want this person to do that they, you know, three people would need to do that job. I've got two more things. One's kind of a big topic, and then the other's our closing question. But you had some really good advice on interviewing as an executive. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, you know, just in terms of how to evaluate the organization's view of technology. And, you know, one of the statements you made to me is, do you just see technology as a ticket taker? You know, you had these sorts of these these ideas. 
interviewing is extremely important. We talk about it a lot on the show. We've had many CISOs that have joined that have said they have wished they would have asked different questions. I'm sure the same applies to many CIOs, just in terms of, you know, I, gosh, I, I should have said this, or this is what I think would be the best question to ask. And, you know, you kind of interviewing them more than just getting questions thrown at you. Can you give us some tips on that? How do you approach that? And, and what do you think are a good set of sort of rules to follow as you go in and, and evaluate a, a new company? Well, definitely, if you are interviewing in a leadership and executive leadership position, you know, the way I, I think about it is you've already done a lot in your career to get into that interview, right? You, you've got a pretty robust, well, likely pretty robust resume, diversity of experience, all of that. You're now in the room. The interview is not going to be, do you have the technical chops for the job? Let's face it, if you're at that level, you have a team of technologists or leaders or that who would be working for you. What you need to, and this is what I do, you're absolutely right. You are interviewing the organization as much as they are interviewing you. So don't forget that. And that's not a cockiness. That's just, it is what it is. It's, it's fit on both sides. What I ask and what I think is so important for people to ask is, the culture. What is the culture of the organization around technology and security? It's not like you need a pat on the back, like, oh my gosh, technology is super, super important to us. We're so glad, you know, you're going to be here to run things. How does it mesh? Is it, I always say, we're not more important than any other division, but we are as important. So it's not technology, again, of potentially 30 years ago, right? Where it's like, we're just ticket takers and does my computer work? And, you know, do I have a, a keyboard and that? It is about technology and ergo security, because they go hand in hand, being an absolute, not only enabler of the organization, but what will push the organization forward into its next steps, whatever that is. So you need to ask questions that will elicit from those individuals what they think about technology. And if you ask the right types of questions, again, is there you know a technology strategy committee with the board? Is there a regular report out of the board regarding technology or security? Where does the CIO or the CISO or both, do they participate in budget development, forecasting? You can ask those kinds of questions because very soon, you know, people always show us who they are. They tell us. You'll get that feeling of, oh, wait a minute. No, this organization really is just seeing IT as, as like, you, like a utility. I turn the lights on, my technology works. And so I think if you're going in, I mean, if you want to work in an organization like that, God bless. I mean, that's fine. But if you want to be a real change maker and really be able to move the organization forward, you've got to have that kind of it's it's not just a seat at the table. It's a voice at the table, too. Like you, you need to be able to help drive the organization where it wants to go. So asking those questions, they're very pointed, but it's right back at those people interviewing you to say, I'm here. I mean, you know, I'm here to help the organization. I do mean business. I am business minded. I'm going to be asking you these questions because I need to understand the job is hard enough. Being a CIO and a CISO in today's world is hard enough. You don't need to go to an organization that's going to relegate you to a second or third tier chief. That's a huge issue that I hear this from, from many organizations, from many people that they're in that second or probably third tier C-level. But their bad day factor is one of the highest in the company. So making sure that your interview questions allow you to avoid that existence. That's fantastic news and information. Uh, thank you so much. We've got one more question. We ask it to everybody. We're going to do it a little differently this time because of our guests, but we are the new CISO, but we've got a CIO on. So changing the name of the show a little bit, but 
what does being a, a new CIO mean to you? Or maybe a CISO, you can, you wear many hats, but, but pursuant to the name of the show, what does that mean to you? So I think certainly if you're looking at it from the new CISO, right, and just again, how much security is in the limelight now, you know, we asked for a seat, we now have a seat, the light is being shown on us. And so certainly as a new CISO, the day of the fear, uncertainty and doubt, the FUD, as we call insecurity, is long gone. Do not bullshit people. The new CISO really does need to understand the importance of security to the organization, but really realize the organization, I mean, you wouldn't be there unless the organization existed. So it really is about making sure that from a security perspective, risks, things are being identified. You're bringing that information to your peers, maybe your other chiefs, board, your CEO, whoever that is, and making sure that you understand that individual, the CEO, the board, whoever, they accept risk for the organization. You don't take it personally. These are business decisions. You are important to the business but speak in terms of business. Don't ever fool yourself for a minute thinking, well, I'm going to come in beating my chest about how this thing is risky or it's, and, you know, and all of a sudden they'll be, you know, sort of kissing the ring and making that decision. It's like you do have to, because they'll work around you. The organization will work around you. So, and it's not because they don't like you. It's because the business has to keep moving forward. So I think from a CISO perspective, the new CISO really does have to understand it's about the business. It's always about the business. And at the new CIO, I'll tell you one term I hate when people say this, and I'm sorry I'm using strong language. I hate when somebody says it's IT and the business, as if IT is not part of the business. It is literally what fuels most businesses to do their core mission. So I think the new CIO, one, certainly has to understand how the organization works. What are the important components of the business in which you work? I promise you, I mean, unless you're a technology business, it's not technology. So we're in healthcare. So our business is serving patients and, you know, the best possible patient outcomes that we can have. How does technology support that? How does security support that? You're speaking from a strategic perspective. You know, I'm sorry, you know, fellow CIOs and CISOs, it's really not all about us. It's not all about you. You are there to, again, power the organization forward. You are part of the business, not standing on the outside. It's not IT in the business. It's just the business. That's an excellent perspective. And I also had to jump up and down, not only because it was such a great answer, but you might be the first that dropped a bullshit in the final closing question, which is phenomenal. Uh, it warms my heart for so many reasons. Will my picture be framed? Is there a wall of shame there by you? No, 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 no. This is great information. Uh, the list, You should write that answer down, um, especially the early parts of it around the CISO piece, but all of it, fantastic virtual mentorship. And uh, I'm just teasing it actually, well, I'm not teasing about it being the first, but that's real. But I love the fact that uh, just the candor is uh, what we're here for as well. So Maria, thank you so much for being here. This was absolutely awesome. For me as well. It's been great. A great pleasure. Thank you for having me. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.